This morning we're going to kind of move along and uh, go to our lesson eight, which is another role that we have as disciplers, uh, particularly disciplers in the home, and that is being an encourager, being an encourager. Our theme verse for all of this has been Ephesians 6 verse 4, and says, and fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21 says, fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Why? Because there's a lot of failure, right? We... We are sinful people. We do a lot of things that that we should not do or do not do things that we should be doing. And if we're going to be disciples according to what the Word of God teaches us to be, then we have to be that conduit, if you will, of encouragement to others. <clears throat> and that takes a lot of different forms and a lot of different ways um, but encouragement just the same, which really, if we think of it in the opposite way, that means we have to work to not be a discouragement. Uh, if we're to be encouragers, we have to work to not be discouragers. And Ephesians 6, 4 and Colossians 3, verse 21, the parallel, bring up some pretty interesting terminology as far as it goes when it comes to being a discourager, right? It says, don't provoke to anger and don't exasperate. Don't provoke to anger, Ephesians 6, 4. Don't exasperate, Colossians 3, verse 21. And of course, we see that first word, provoke, in, in other places in Scripture, right? We are called, Hebrews tells us, we are to provoke one another to love and good deeds. It's the same term. And yet here it's being used in a negative way, right? Carries the idea of irritate. Um, that's the meaning behind it. Excite or stimulate. Um, and so it's a warning. But it's a warning especially at least in the context of Ephesians 6.4, to fathers. Not that mothers aren't to be exhorted in the same way, but this is a warning particularly in this sense, uh, especially to fathers. Why? Because fathers typically set the tone in the home. They are the ones who are called by God to give direction and leadership in the home, which is why uh, we do our Monday night men's group, because I want men, desire men to, to be men as the Bible calls them to be. In fact, I was thinking recently, just the other day, my wife and I were talking as we were driving, and I was thinking about the Christian life and Christianity in general. Do you realize you will never be sanctified in the Christian life unless you're willing to admit that you need change? You'll never grow in the Christian life unless you're willing to say to yourself before God, I need what you have. I need what you have. You'll never become a Christian until you get to the place where you say, you know what, I need this. 
right? If you don't think you need a Savior, you'll never believe, ever. If you, as a Christian, don't believe you need to do things to grow, you'll never grow. And so the first place to start on this is to go, you know, I need this. I need this in my life. I need this for my own spiritual growth. I need this for my family's growth. I need this for my the influence on others' growth. And so we need this warning. We need this warning. It's this present tense, continual action, day-by-day reality when Paul says, do not provoke. Do not provoke. That's the first word that's used, but he says don't provoke to anger. Anger. Right? Remember back in lesson two, it, we talked about opposing our children or coming against their sinfulness. We have to do that. We're called to do that as disciplers in the home. And our opposition to them might indeed provoke some reactions from them. In fact, it probably will provoke in them resistance, definitely displeasure for them for the moment. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about momentary displeasure where they're frustrated, irritated, resist, any of those kinds of things. No. What Paul is saying by means of the Holy Spirit through him is that we're not to provoke them to some kind of seated, settled position of being angry. A lifestyle of anger. Um, This open, seated rebellion. Indifference, apathy, stubbornness. That that reality. That becomes a character of their life. Paul says, don't provoke, don't provoke to anger. And then Colossians says, don't exasperate, exasperate. What does that mean? Exasperate. Overwhelm? Okay. Omega Mon, that would be provoking, I think, in some ways. Yeah, Joe. Cause your children to lose heart. Oh, it's right in your notes. Imagine that. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah, don't be discouraged. <clears throat> we don't want, to, want our children to be, not, not discouraged in the sense that they get discouraged in a momentary thing, but a, a, a deep-seated discouragement where they have a disposition of discouragement in their life. That's what lose heart means there. Right? In other words, they they may be doing what you're asking, but there's something missing in them. Uh, there's this no joy in their life because they've been exasperated. Exasperated. <clears throat> so how do we do that? How do we provoke and exasperate our young disciples in our homes as parents. Well, we exasperate two ways, by what we do and what we don't do. By what we do 
and what we don't do. We might even call these sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins that are sins because we're not doing what we should be doing, or we're sinning by doing things we should not be doing. So let's look at these. Let's just think through some of these sins of omission. Things as parents, as disciplers, that we are not doing that we should be doing. How we, through what we don't do, provoke and exasperate those under our care. The first one is this. By not consistently disciplining and instructing them. An operative word there, consistently. By not consistently disciplining and instructing them. Go back to Ephesians 6, 4. Because right here is the best place to just see this. Do not provoke your children to anger, but... Don't miss those three-letter words in the Bible. They're very, very important. A contrasting conjunction right there, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So how is the first way in which we provoke them to anger? By not consistently doing what this verse tells us to do. Bring them up in the nurture or the discipline and instruction So if we ignore our responsibility to fulfill all that we've already learned in Lesson 4 through 7, or we don't take that responsibility seriously in the home, then we run the very real risk of provoking and exasperating those under our care. So how important is it for us as disciplers in the home to do what God says? Is it important? Deadly important, right? It's deadly important. In fact, we'll see just how important even this morning in our message from Jude. It's deadly important to not simply hear the Word of God See what God says by way of command and not take it seriously. To just go, ah, yeah, well, okay. Here, it's serious. Our children need the training and instruction from the Lord, and God has given us as the instruments to do that. It is not those in the youth program here those downstairs who teach your children Sunday school, it's not their job, it's not their responsibility to to train your children in the instruction of the Lord. It's yours. Now they can help you do that through teaching the Word of God to them as you allow them to have influence in your children's life, but you will be held accountable for following this command. We are responsible. Now, of course, there has to be a balance, right? We've talked about balance in the past in our time here. There has to be this balance between discipline and instruction. 
And those who are inconsistent, those who are irregular or even unpredictable in their discipline and instruction can be therefore guilty of exasperating or provoking them to anger. Right? And so in order to not do that, we have to avoid a couple of extremes. A couple of extremes that we're going to talk about here in this whole area of inconsistency. One extreme goes to the side of excessive control. Excessive control. The first thing that comes to my mind when I read those terms and think about it is today's helicopter parent. Right? We all know that term. The parent who just hovers over everything. There's nothing their kid can do that they're not there in order to ensure that their child doesn't have any kind of failures, mistakes, learning times, whatever. And it might even come out by creating too many rules to rule whatever it is they're under. Rules that are pointless. Rules that are overly harsh, too strict. It's the idea of being just a, a walking minus sign to everything that my kids want to do. Everything they ask, I say no. Right? It's a micromanaging kind of idea. Micromanage their entire life. Make sure they do everything exactly how you say in every detail, the way you say it, because you're helicoptering over them in everything. No freedoms. No controlled freedoms. When I say that, that's what I mean. Controlled freedoms is not willy-nilly. We'll see that when we look at the other side of it. But we are to look for opportunities to say yes and not simply be just no people. Um, so we have to take this self-evaluation. This is why I said that earlier. We, If we don't do a self-evaluation and look for areas where we need to change in our own self, we're never going to do anything different with our kids. We're going to look at Ephesians 6, 4 and go, yeah, I'm doing that. When in fact we may not be doing that, probably aren't doing that, certainly aren't doing that in every way that we ought to be doing that. And yet, because we're unwilling to even look and evaluate them, we read the verse and read the passage and go, yeah, that's me. And so we can't do that. So one is this whole idea of just being willy-nilly in your or excessive control over them. And excessive control can be a problem that, that flows out of wrong motives. Wrong motives for discipline. In fact, turn to Ephesians chapter 12. I mean, not Ephesians, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Let's just look at this for a moment. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 5 and down through verse 11, we get this whole picture, really, And as the writer of Hebrews says, it's an exhortation to us because we're sons of God. And he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. 
because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. So it is for discipline that we endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's key. But if you're without discipline, of which all of you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. And furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of the spirits and live? Because they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. So all discipline for the moment seems to be not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet those to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So right there we have this proper, we have an illustration here by God himself for us, the proper illustrate the illustration of proper motives that ought to drive our exercise of discipline in our children. We're called to bring them up in discipline, and here's an example of how we go about it, what the motives are behind it. Here's the motives, right? Verse 6, out of love. He disciplines us because He loves us. Sounds like Proverbs, right? If you don't discipline your children, you don't love them. In fact, you hate them, Proverbs says. So discipline's first motive is love. So think about that when your children, when you're whatever age they are, when they're not following the instruction that you've given. If you advocate that or exercise excessive control over that, you are not loving them. That's not Terry's words. That's God's words. You're not following what God does for us. So that's proper motivation number one. Proper motivation number two is you cultivate in them holiness, right? He disciplined us that we might share in His holiness. Do you see? You can't be sanctified without saying, I need it. You can't be sanctified without discipline. That's what holiness is. Set apartness. Your children will find no, we'll see this in a moment, your children will find no need for a Savior if you're not disciplining them. You'll see why in a minute. They'll find no need for a Savior if you're not disciplining them. And the third motivation is verse 11 that they might be trained toward a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Do you see? Discipline doesn't seem joyful in the moment, and yet those who are trained by it, those who receive it, those who exercise it, those who practice what they've been trained under, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Those are the motivations for disciplining our kids. It's not because your friends do it. It's not because your friends don't do it. It's not because 
You want them to turn out to be some kind of societal person that would be perfect in in your eyes and that you won't have to answer for any trouble, delinquency or whatever. No, it's simply because you love them. You want them to know Christ. And so our discipline should be for the glory of God and the benefit of them. We glorify God by doing what God asks us to do and it benefits them. So it's not out of our own convenience that we discipline. That's that's a totally wrong motive. We can't develop the restrictions, the rules, the boundaries, whatever we want to call them, simply for our own convenience. That's sinful. That's just sinful. It's the wrong motive. So what do wrong motives look like? What do the wrong motives look like? Well, first of all, they look like elevating your your preferences over biblical principle. Elevating your preferences over biblical principles. Happens to us often because we are sinful and therefore we're prone to emphasize our own preferences over what the Bible says. And instead of making up rules in your home and things for your children to follow that are simply preferences, there's nothing wrong with those. We all have them. Nothing necessarily wrong with them. But sometimes those go too far and they're only simply to allow us to be able to accomplish and do whatever it is we want to do with no thought to our children at all. Maybe you don't want your young children to touch certain items in your home and instead of teaching them about that and teaching them the principle of stewardship, you just do it because your preference is to not have to deal with it at all. And so instead of teaching them and giving them instruction as they grow up and do those kinds of things, you just simply do it because it's easier for you. That's an example of excessive control. Just fulfilling your own sinful desire rather than bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Which really kind of feeds into the second motive, and that's just simple laziness. Laziness, none of us want to think we're lazy, and yet all of us need to go there at times and realize we are lazy. Right? We don't deal with our kids and the issues with our kids. Why? We just don't want to have to. In fact, I don't want to have to think through the problem. Because if I have to think through the problem, that means I have to engage in it, which means I have to deal with things, and I really don't want to do that. So my personal preferences get transformed into just flat-out laziness. And so I excessively control the situation, not because I should be, but simply because it's easier for me to fulfill my own desire of not having to deal with the situation as God intends. So it's easier to just say no 
You should just not do it. You know what's another example of laziness? Procrastination. Procrastination. I get to it tomorrow. Here's a, here's a phrase we use in parenting <clears throat> that is a procrastination phrase. You ready? It's only a stage. They're just in a stage. That's a procrastination phrase that we use to convince ourselves. We don't need to do anything. They'll grow out of it. That's just laziness. That's just laziness, folks. That's all it is. They'll grow out of it. No, they won't. They'll grow into it. They're not going to grow out of it. They're going to grow into it. They're going to become it. None of us grow out of sin. We don't. Sin has to be... How does, how does Romans tell us to take care of sin in our life? Huh? Kill it. You got to do something about it. It's not just going to go away. Kill it. Well, your children are the same way. They're not going to grow out of it. <clears throat> you got to deal with it. Third, the third way we... Third motive that's wrong is fear. Fear. Ah, oh, there's a lot being talked about fear today, isn't there? In our society. Nobody wants to talk about it, but that's really what's going on. <clears throat> a lot of fear. Well, it happens in our homes because we as parents are afraid of failure. We're afraid of our children failing. We're afraid of us being seen as a failure. And so we tighten, we clamp down, we tighten the screws down, we, we shrink the circle, if you will, so much so because it feeds us. It protects us from any kind of potential failure, or at least our estimation of what failure might look like. <clears throat> so we make excessive rules. I mean, sometimes we define, especially in Christian circles, and I'm trying, I don't want to be too graphic here for young years or whatever, but sometimes it's parents we say, as long as I can get my children 18 years old and out of the house without some kind of illicit relationship before marriage, I was a good parent. Sometimes we, we define good parenting like that in the church. I think to myself, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Certainly I don't want that to happen in the lives of young people because of the destructive realities that goes on in the heart with all of those kind of things, but that doesn't define good parenting. I mean, you can be a, a helicopter parent and, and achieve that thing and pat yourself on the back and say, I did such a great job and fail at Ephesians 6-4 miserably. So we fear a lot of things. We fear embarrassment. And so we oftentimes will discipline our children based upon what others might think. <clears throat> we don't want to be embarrassed, and so we discipline our children. I remember when I was on staff at Grace Community Church in California, myself and my brother were there, and our kids were little. 
I remember coming around the corner one day and my oldest son, I always tell these stories so my kids know, but my oldest son and his cousin were there throwing dice against the wall with some other kids from school. And my nephew was saying, you know, those funny lines that they picked up from somebody and somebody told him, mama needs a new pair of shoes, you know, and throws the dice, you know. On church, you know, the pastor's kids are leading the way, you know. This is what happens. We don't want to be embarrassed. So we helicopter and we, we clamp down and we put these massive rules on them rather than have to deal with the issue. Provoke them to anger. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. <clears throat> we have to understand it's a process, right? It's a process. It's a process with them. There's a lot that goes on. <clears throat> so beware of excessive control that's going to hinder that process. <clears throat> there are another extreme to avoid is this. All right, let's swing the pendulum the other way, right? Excessive control was one way. What would be the other side? No limits at all. No limits at all. Right, everything's open. Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. 1 Kings 1, 6. Talking about David. And his, this is what he says about his, him dealing with his son, Adoniah. And his father never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done this? So David dealt with one of his sons, Adoniah. Sometimes that's how we deal with our children. We let them do whatever they want to do. Whatever they want to do. Everything's okay. But let me give you some Reasons why not to do that. Right? Where there are no limits, where there are no limits, there will be no humility. That's number one. Where there are no limits, there will be no humility. Why do I say that? Because Proverbs says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of child, so our depravity that we're born with begins to express itself in greater and greater and greater ways. <clears throat> and when there's no limits, then I have no reason to ever say, hey, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm doing it my way. This is the way it goes. And therefore, if my children live under this idea of no limits, then they have this rule of their own lives, and they have no reason to ever come under the instruction of the Word of God. They don't need it. They don't need it. There's no sense in which I'm ever wrong. I just do whatever I want. I'm a self-made person from day one. 
And so they grow up being prideful, arrogant, no need for any kind of counsel, no need for wise counsel at all. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5, here's what Adonijah said. I will be king. David never opposed him, and Adonijah grew up to be the one who said, I'm going to get rid of my father. I'm going to be the king. He'd always ruled his own life, and now he wanted to rule his father's. Notice what Proverbs 11 says about the fool And when I speak about the fool, in, or when this verse speaks about the fool, it's not talking about the son. It's talking about the father. Proverbs 11, verse 29. He who troubles his own house will inherit wind. He who troubles his own house will inherit wind. It's a pretty graphic picture. Like David, right? Bible says if you sow the wind, there's no limits. You sow the wind, what do you reap? The whirlwind. If you're gonna reap the if you're gonna sow the wind, you better be prepared for the tornado. It's coming. David reaped the wind, no limits with Adonijah, and he was sowing the whirlwind, a son who wanted to get rid of him. That's the heart of a fool. A fool thinks he can live without any kind of counsel. I don't need anybody else. So if you have no limits on your children that point them back to the absolute truth and the only truth that we have, which is the Word of God, if you have no limits that point them back to that, you have a person who sees no need. His own wisdom is sufficient for him. I don't need anything else. So caution your children. Caution them on these things. One of the dangers of young people is they hold their opinions as if they're convictions. Kevin. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes that happens. I mean, it's not a guarantee that that will. Not everyone chooses to exercise their sin the way you chose it. You know, the world would say, well, you were just a victim of your upbringing. It wasn't your fault. That's what the world says. And yet the reality is we all choose to exercise our sinfulness. I mean, and there's no guarantee. My point in even saying that is we're not results producers, right? We are just simply to be faithful instruments in the hands of God to do what God has called us to do. 
But that doesn't mean that if we do these things, sometimes we get in our minds, okay, Lord, Lord, I obeyed you. I, you know, I did what you asked. Why are these kids of mine such hellions? You know, we start to blame God. It's your fault. You know, we're like Adam. And yet the reality is it's their choice. They have to choose to follow the where you pointed them to. So teach them to not hold their opinions too, too heavily. This is a young person problem in many, many ways. Oftentimes they'll hold their opinions as if they're convictions. They're just simply their opinions about things, but they hold them as if they've been founded and solidified through the walk of faith, founded on truth. And they're not. People that hold their opinions in high esteem that is really just an expression of foolishness. Because we're told in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we all have to begin there. We need to learn to love it. So you'll build no humility. There'll be no humility in the life of someone if there's no limits in your home. But also, secondly, if there's no limits in your home, there will be no cleansing of the conscience. There'll be no cleansing of the conscience because there's nothing coming against it. There's nothing opposing it. Proverbs 20, verse 30, stripes that wound scour away evil. Stripes that wound scour away evil and strokes reach the innermost parts. I have heard, I've counseled people and heard people say, I've done that, it didn't work. You need to discipline your children. I've done that, it didn't work. Well, Proverbs says it does. Proverbs says it does. In fact, Proverbs says it it doesn't just deal with the external behavior, it deals with the innermost parts. Correction, the correction that comes by way of biblical discipline gives your children a good illustration of the cost of sin. When they do wrong and you discipline, there's a perfect illustration right there before their very eyes that sin cost. Sin cost. There is a payment required for sin. And Christ on the cross paid a price. He paid the just penalty for sin. And so discipline drives that home. It drives home the seriousness of that reality. Sin cost. I think this is part of the problem with our society today and the breakdown of the family. We have this reality where we have this attitude of entitlement in society. Everybody's entitled. There's no consequence. No consequence for anything. And I think part of that was fostered by simply just the litigation society that we live in. You know, when I grew up as a child, we didn't have helmets and knee pads and arm pads and things like that. We didn't have disclaimers on every toy and all these other kind of stuff. All that's come about because somebody sued. Something happened that they were responsible for by way of an accident happening and somebody sued. And so the lawyers 
you know, the company said, we got to do something so we don't have that problem again. And they put all these rules and regulations out there. And now you can't do anything without those kind of things. I was telling my son yesterday, uh, my oldest son here with the grandkids last week, and I was telling my son, I said, man, we were talking about seatbelt laws and these kind of things and shoulder, you know, we got five, almost five point harnesses in cars. When I was a kid, you remember the shelf, for those of you who are old, remember the shelf and the, by the back window, you know, you had the seat go up and there was a shelf back there, you know, in the window. I used to lay up there as a kid, drive my father driving down the freeway in California. I mean, there was none of this, you know, stuff. You barely had a lap belt in the car when you bought it. I think that was even an extra feature to have seat belts put in the car. Now, I'm not saying those are bad things to have, safety regulations and that kind of stuff. I'm just saying that part of that is brought about because we're in this entitlement society that it's not my fault. Nothing is my fault. If I go to McDonald's and order hot coffee and it burns my mouth, it's McDonald's fault that I drank hot coffee and burnt myself. I mean, that's ridiculous. And I think that's fostered because we have this idea that there's no cleansing of the conscience. Nobody has to be held accountable. There's no cost for sin. <clears throat> but confession of sin allows our children to not only understand the cost of sin, but then to understand the joy that comes when we are forgiven. <clears throat> Clears the conscience. Things are made right. Confession happens. Conscience is cleared. And so if there's no limits and no discipline, then nobody's driven to the place where they have to confess sin. And my, now that we have a police officer in the family, we talk about law on a regular basis. And I've said this before. I think I've even said it in here. If you have a law without teeth is not a law. And you have rules in your home that have no consequence. They're not rules. You're just trying to appease yourself. But they're not rules. And your children know it. <clears throat> there has to be consequences for, dis for sinfulness. And continual disobedience without a cleansing of the conscience only suppresses the conscience. When you suppress the conscience, guilt increases. David said in Psalm 32, no, Psalm 51, <clears throat> before I confessed my sin, my, my bones wasted away as if it was in the fever heat of summer. He's like, I, I, I felt the, this weight of guilt upon my, myself as if it was crushing me. But when I confessed my sin, there was cleansing that happened. That's what our children get to experience when they confess sin. So encourage them and help them by teaching them what is right and then calling them to live by it. And then if they're wrong, come against it. If you have no limits or low limits, very little limits at all, then 
then uh, very often they're going to grow up to not respect any kind of authority in their life because they're their authority. They just rule themselves. <clears throat> any questions so far? Yeah, way in the back. Yeah. Yep. 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 We have a lot of those, don't we? Oh, they're in the terrible twos. Kevin. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's hard to tell when if we're driving him to anger, you know, from our fault, you know, we didn't recommend him too much, or he's just having a fit and he's just, you know, doing a terrible two thing. That he's uh, having a fit and he's not getting it. So. My guess is at his age, he's he just doesn't like the rule. He doesn't like the rule, which if he was under the care of me, I would put some more disdain upon him so that he understands that they, even that's wrong. Well, you know, if you're doing those things, if you're, if you're not disciplining, you're, you know, or if you're hovering over him and everything, and everything's a no. I mean, at his age, you you get to decide. Okay, here's what a here's what you understand. I mean, I remember my my kids when they were young used to say, "Dad, you don't trust me." I mean, they were just old enough sometimes to talk. I say, "Well, you, that's not necessarily accurate. You're right. I don't trust you as a 12 year old to drive the car, but I do trust you to." to dress yourself and to clean your room and these kinds of things. So, so it's not true that I don't trust you. You just want to have a responsibility in the area you're not ready for. I'm the one who gets to decide that. Well, a two-year-old, you get to decide what area of responsibility he's for. And for him, it's do what I say right now. He's learning mom and dad are authority. You do what I say. And when you fuss and whine about that, you need to understand that that attitude is a problem. And it has consequences because you're the authority. You're not exasperating him. You're helping to train him. Um, he doesn't even know what anger is other than if I do this, I get my way. If my mom and if I can wear them down or not. You see what I mean? So the, the whole idea of as exasperation uh, is a is a deep seededness in them. Certainly, you're not seeing that yet in a, in a two year old. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, sure. 
Right. 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 And they may not like it. God didn't ask them to like it. God said, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. He didn't ask you to obey only when you like the rules. Exactly. It's another biblical principle. And all those things you talk about, obviously with a two-year-old, you're in this stage right now. Dad said it, you do it. You're in that area of life. Which tells you that there was pre-training before they entered, right? So she was doing whatever she was doing at the home so that when she could get on a plane, she could say, this is how we act on the plane. They knew exactly what she was talking about around other people. Yep, same thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with going out to eat at a restaurant or something like that, right? Oftentimes you'll be at a restaurant and there'll be a kid running up and down the aisles or whatever else. Well, what's the problem there? The kid? Okay, yeah, he, he's got some issues, but what's the real problem? Yeah, you want to find the table and go smack them. Not because the kid's out of control, but because they're doing nothing. Deal with it. I mean, that's what really gets to us, isn't it? Sometimes when we're out and about or we're, or our older children bring their children over or whatever, or we see things. What frustrates us is not the kids acting out. Sin is born in the heart. Foolishness is in the heart of a child. They'll do foolish, stupid things. The issue is why don't we deal with it? That's what frustrates us. It's the same thing, right? What frustrates us in public is not necessarily the kid is doing that. What frustrates us in public is the parents not doing anything about it when they ought to. Yeah, in the back. That adds some more challenges, yep. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I, I would just say this. One of the, you know, when it came to these kind of things, of course, this is just, you know, us talking about parenting. But one of our personal rules in our own home is when we went out to eat, we didn't want our family being a bother to someone else's night out. Right? So... I didn't want my children looking over the back of the booth at the table that they were, you know, 
right now during our time, they got big walls up so the kids can't really do that. But I, I didn't want my children being a bother to somebody else's evening. Those people didn't deserve their night out to be, to be interrupted by me and my children. So we dealt with things at home around our own dinner table in trying to teach them the actions and the reality of how you operate when you're eating and those kinds of things, so that when we did go out, they weren't doing that. And if they did do something, we dealt with it. You know, nowadays you have to deal with it in a more private fashion in the sense that you might have to go to your car, you might have to go to the restroom and make sure nobody else is in the restroom, you know, all these kinds of things. But we dealt with those things because I didn't want somebody else having to have to, to you know, have their evening or whatever it was um, be inconvenienced because I didn't want to deal with my kid. That's really what it was. And it's true when we have situations, there are expectations that others have. I think now our society in many ways when it comes to that have built you know, we have restaurants now that have entire play zones in them. I think part of the reason that is, is simply because we don't want to parent our kids. Not that we don't want our kids to have fun. I mean, that's okay. I'm not, I'm not downplaying that, but I think the development of that and the, and the invention of that is the outcropping of poor parenting. Because he never used to have those things when I was a kid. I never went to McDonald's to play in the play zone. Even the cheap restaurants didn't have that. So I think part of that is just the outcropping of our societal parenting that we don't do anymore. We don't parent. Anyway, we're out of time. So write your questions down, save your questions. We'll finish up this next week. And then we have one more lesson to go. Lesson nine, uh, which may take us a couple weeks too, because it's rather, uh, let me see, is it long? That's not too long, so we might be done next week. For those, I say that for those guys who will be teaching the next Sunday school class as they look with bright eyes. <laughs> anyway, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to be together. Lord, these are uh, practical things, things that we can think through and uh, evaluate in our own heart. In life, um, certainly we haven't touched on everything, and certainly we wouldn't even in a class like this. But uh, help us to apply uh, the truth of your word diligently, faithfully, in honor and glory to you, and then trust you with whatever you produce in that. Lord, we know you're a great God, and so we thank you for your sovereign hand in it all. Thank you for the grace and mercy that you show us when we fail. And uh, knowing that you are accomplishing your purposes in spite of even our failures. And so we're grateful for that. So use our time now and the rest of our morning to worship you and honor you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.